Do you want to start off, Ben? Do you want to tell us, introduce to my listeners what you do? <laughs> That's the thing. So um, uh, the idea is that definitely we both run podcasts, so we're very much used to interview, interviewing other people. So now we've got two interviewers trying to interview each other, which is kind of amusing, and it'll be interesting how we go. But okay, right. So <laughs> for, for me, like, um, I can just answer really quickly for your question. Now, what do I do? Uh, I, write, I run a company called Physics Education, which can't spell very well, but it's F I Z I C S. And it's an outreach company. So we run programs at schools, libraries, museums, zoos, aquariums, all those sorts of places to be able to teach kids how the world works. That's our job. And so we have staff in Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, and Canberra, and lately in San Diego as well. Uh, and the idea is that we'll go to any audience who wants to do stuff. <laughs> That's such a simple way of saying it. So we think we, we worked out last year, we reached about 300,000 kids a year, something like that. Uh, and it just keeps on growing and growing. I was reflecting on my own um, uh, world when, whereby um, the back when I was, I think I was six or seven years old, and that's the thing, it's one of the haze of memory where it kind of kicks in as to whether you're not actually sure if you're remembering a memory or a dream, but I'm fairly sure that when I was living in Townsville up there that I went to a kid's science party. I know this because we now run science parties, right? But now looking back on this, I only got a couple of snapshots of my memory, but I know that the boffin who turned up was playing with his cold stuff that was liquid. And at the time, I got no idea than that. That's all I learned as a six-year-old, right? It's cold stuff and it's a liquid. Turns out it was liquid nitrogen, right? And I distinctly remember them cooling down a squash ball and throwing it at the wall and it's shattering. Now, by the way, heads up, guys, don't do that because you get the shards of really cold rubber that acts like basically really hard stuff, which all these people don't do that. <laughs> but I know this is back in the early 80s, right? You could do whatever you want then. But <laughs> the... They throw the squash ball at the wall. The shards go everywhere. Everyone freaks out and they all rush forward because, hey, what else a six-year-old is going to do? And I distinctly remember holding this cold shard of broken squash ball in my hand, freaking out. And I know cool. that this actually happened. I don't think it was a dream. Like, who's going to dream that when they're six, right? So <laughs> the, that tiny little thing, who knows if that was the beginning of a trajectory which brought me to where I am now. Uh, I always wonder about all that, you know, you can almost think about the sliding doors, those pathways where you're never quite sure what you're actually doing, but you do get led down the path and you get inspired by people all over the place. And I think every touch point in STEM matters. So that uh, that's a nice segue into my question for you. Yeah, let's go for it, mate. What is STEM to you? S-T-E-M. Or A and an R and a whatever else that people want to say. Uh, STEM to me is, you know, the, the acronym science, technology, engineering, mathematics. But frankly, I think it just boils down to problem solving. For me, it's just simply what tools have you got or hanging around that can allow you, the learner, the person who needs to solve the problem, to, well, solve the problem. Um, I'm less concerned about labels and more concerned, concerned about what you do. Um, we find that a lot of people will answer with something like it's problem solving. I, I always find it interesting the the people who spell it out like you just did. There's a few responses that we get which are very much, you know, I don't like labels, so it's about this. So I would be in that yeah. pot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you basically got all of the uh, you got all of them. I mean, everyone's got a bit of a feeling about what STEM is, and um, I mean, our work at physics is to go out to all these different schools and things, and we hear lots of different feedback about what people think STEM is. Sometimes people do a lot of time in the technology side. Sometimes people do a lot of time in the engineering, like the maker stuff side. You talk with a lot of people who have been doing this for quite a long time. It's meant to be an integration of all four things, right? Um, but then again, the fact that the, the question is what is STEM almost 
alludes to the idea that no one really truly definitely 100% actually defined the thing before it broke out onto the world. <laughs> now everyone's trying to work out what to do with it. Yeah, correct. I find that interesting as well, which is, you know, the reason we ask what is STEM because uh, here we are, you know, my podcast is called STEM Punk, but we don't really know what it is. And we're crowdsourcing a definition of STEM almost by asking everyone, what is it? It's, it's a funny thing that we, yeah, we don't know. We don't know what it is yet. Here we are. It's the buzzword at the moment. Yeah, and it's actually starting to get a bit off the ball. Now, it's not so much what happens in the media occasionally. It's the what I'm hearing um, just on a subjective point of view, just simply just what the feedback is from the teachers that we hear is they really just want a simplistic way of looking at those four disciplines that can be communicated well to people who need to communicate that literacy onto their learners, right? So if it means that they understand that there are these things called variables and you can apply these variables to the thing you just made and that you can measure the thing and maybe hook up a bit of tech in the, in the meantime. It sort of seems to be leaning that way, but I think everyone's got a good take on it or a different take on it rather. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're not doing a great thing. It just means they're doing a creative idea of what STEM is. Yeah, and uh, perhaps that's a really good thing about a definition that we don't really know what it is, is, is there's many interpretations, therefore many directions you can go to kind of do, do whatever it is you do. What's your origin story for physics education? I actually still wonder. <laughs> all right, so we started in 2004. Um, all right, so it actually winds back slightly further than that, uh, as all good stories do, but I will promise this will not be long. Uh, I trained as a biologist, actually, uh, and um, when you enter the big bad world of trying to find a job in biology, it turns out there's not, there was not much work in that in the mid-90s. So I, like a lot of uh, biology graduates do, I joined a bushland regeneration team. And what that meant was chopping out lantana and privet and all those fun weeds that are right across the Sydney Basin. So I did a lot of my biology with a chainsaw. So we're doing all this work and clearing out all these weeds and things. And the public constantly harassed us. Well, they're acquisitive, but the harass is actually quite a, a useful work because some of them thought we were genuinely day-release prisoners or we were environmental vandals. So right. this public work was happening in an area where people had no idea about what the benefit would be. There was no communication about what was happening in their own world, right? And you do this for long enough, and you start to realize perhaps maybe there's an issue here that rather than trying to clean up the mess that's been created by all the runoff and pollution, all the stuff, all the stuff that creates weed infestations in the area, why not actually help people understand about their environment, right? And so, you know, quick left turn and trajectory become a high school science teacher because I thought, hey, I can influence a lot of kids, might be able to help out with understanding our local community and all the rest. Uh, that didn't last long. I was lucky enough to be picked up with CSIRO Science Education, which is this fantastic outreach um, group. It's been changed a little bit lately in the last couple of years, but for a number of years, it was highly influential in getting a lot of kids doing a lot of cool stuff right around Australia. So I was Agreed. involved with them. Yeah, they were fantastic. They did a bloody well good job, frankly. And so I was there for a couple of years, but I came to a point where I thought, you know what? And you're probably starting to pick up the, the flavor here. I, I'm a fairly restless type of person. And for me, I thought I just need to start doing stuff myself. I just couldn't help myself. So I entered small business wilderness. <laughs> and, uh, awesome. and funnily enough, winding back to what we just described, uh, started doing science parties because I knew full well that no one else would actually start off with this initially all right so several years of doing hundreds and hundreds literally i know by uh, literally by numbers that i personally ran about seven about 750 science parties myself um as well as getting 
building up a team to be able to produce science outreach that I felt worked for me. And so wind that forward, we've now got, it's kind of got out of control a little bit, <laughs> but it still stays true to the idea that I was always started with the idea that I want to teach people about how the world works, but do not, but I don't want to have boxes around how that might look like. And that includes funding opportunities or lack thereof, or perceptions and realities around how a particular potential direction of a bureaucracy might be leading. No, I, I do pick that up that you, you don't want to sit still and let something, uh, let a question go unanswered. <laughs> yeah. That's why I said, I promise to do a really short story, <laughs> not talk for too long. I, um, I, I do get accused at work going, okay, it's time, it's time to finish now. <laughs> we need to do some work. What's the most popular thing that you do? Like what's the, the session that you do that most people go for? Um, all right. So there's about 39 programs. Uh, there is, there is not about, I mean, 39 is quite precise. That's exactly what it is. Uh, yeah. but the, um, and that's been driven by the Australian curriculum itself. Uh, so we yeah. never de develop programs that actually fit the curriculum. So to answer the question in a simplistic way, it's actually one of the large stage shows. I mean, two thirds of our programs are hands-on workshops where the kids will come through 30 kids a pop and get to do stuff with equipment that they won't get in their school. Uh, but I must say the stage shows work really well because they're also about inspiration. So you'll have several hundred people come through the door and it's a little bit, you know, whiz bang pow type stuff. Uh, but it has a narrative of science literacy all through it. And the idea being that you can engage with your school and our feedback from the schools are this works. And what happens sure. when the kids start engaging with the school, like to be honest, yeah, I'm a science guy. I'm going to be wanting people to do science. However, I actually don't care if they now engage further with history, art, doesn't matter, music, literature, it doesn't matter to me. If the kids are now engaging with their school further, we've still done our job properly. So that's sort of part of that. And what then happens is that then flows into other programs as well. So you do a stage show at a school where you bring the whole school in and you do your show, just like uh, the Bell Shakespeare Company does their show. Or yeah, literally. So, I mean, yeah, we've right. got 16 vehicles driving around the place just all the time doing programs majority are workshop based but the, the, the school hall type setup works really well and in fact frankly it actually works incredibly well from a school's budget point of view remember i used to be a teacher uh that now it's you've got more kids in the hall it just becomes a mathematical construct that it's going to cost less per child just as what it's going to be so yes. that means that you can reach disadvantaged communities quite well with this really cool show that actually helps them now engage with their processes that happen in the school as well and so, and, and so on. And it works real, a, a real trait. I also used to be a teacher. I know the, the situation where uh, it's, it's handy to get all of the school in for this one science thing and it kind of works, you know, for the bean counters. Yeah, and just what really matters then is then going, well, that was fun and wow. In fact, I, we make a point of saying, and there's about two experiments in. We usually settle everyone down, and this is, this is a narrative that always goes through. We go, here's the problem with science shows. And you get this sort of look from the kids because they're not used to someone talking to you like that because you, you're meant to be all like, here's the show, right? Everything's awesome. And we just, we just say, here's the problem with science shows. I'm going to tell you straight up this is the problem. Uh, we're going to come here. We're going to do an experiment one, and everyone goes, wow. And then we do experiment two. Then everyone goes, wow. Then three, then four, and so on. And then you then go home at some point, and then the person who looks after you says, what did you see? And you said, I saw some science stuff. And then they'll ask you, what did you yeah. learn? And then you go, uh -huh, I don't know. And that's hundred percent. The biggest problem with science shows is there's too much theatrics and us as a, from a credit, not just credibility from our visceral knowledge, the kids learn properly when you 
you know, wind back the drama a little bit and go, you know what, what is the point of the experiment? What is actually trying to show? What is it modeling? Start using the real words that happen in the real context of science. Then it starts to work and suddenly it does, it's no longer a show as such. You're now working with the audience to actually understand that these concepts being presented are real things, not tricks, not magic. When we talk about models in, uh, in Kickstart as well, we do, we do something very similar. So I've got a trampoline that's got a, a simulated weight on it um, and then you throw some marbles around uh, the trampoline and it orbits, you know, it's, it's a model of an orbit basically. Yeah, cool, I and, love that experiment. And before we do it, I'll stop everyone and say, hey look, just, you know, this is a model. With all models, there are inaccuracies and possible misconceptions. So if you walk away thinking that you understand everything about orbital mechanics, then I've not done my job properly. <laughs> uh, you know, when I'm doing this, have a think about how this is not a good model or have a think about how you could model this better. Uh, I completely agree with that point. Yeah. It's almost like breaking the fourth wall to say, we're all having a good time, we're having fun, but let's just think about what's actually happening here. Exactly right. Without critical analysis, you really just might as well just have some popcorn. Do you do any presentations for non-school audiences? Like Absolutely. Like that um, science show for general public? We've run programs in prisons, hospitals. Oh, wow. Yeah, cool. the whole thing. We do uh, globally. We teach by video conference. Just prior to this recording, I was talking about, I'm really tired right now because this is not making stuff up. I did four programs to a school in New York from midnight to 5 a.m. this morning. And the reason why is, again, if people connect with us, we want to connect back with them. We're not going to say no if we, if we can do it, right? So yeah. we've run programs to retirement homes. Uh, I mean, we run about 400 science parties a year. Uh, it keeps us very busy on the weekends. Um, we've run programs on cruise ships at all sorts of places. We do a lot of representation for large companies. So, for example, uh, with the NRMA, the National Roads and Motoring Association, we run uh, about 200 schools a year, something like that for them. We're currently, yeah. literally today, we ran um, some programs with the GWS Giants on footy maths and sports and nutrition. Uh, we're running programs which are just about to be announced. So actually, uh, Tom, you're getting this first. <laughs> we're, wow. we're running some programs with Toyota in West Melbourne uh, regarding STEM as well. Our headspace is why should there be a box? You only create your box and, and sit in it. So don't create the box in the first place. Yeah. My father used to tell me, uh, you know, why... Why would you think outside the box? There's a lot of people who put time and money and effort into creating that box. That's right. <laughs> so it's like, no, nah, let's break it. Let's think outside it. Yeah, and I mean, it's such a cliche. And I imagine there'd be some people going, sitting there in the car, walking the dog going, here we go again. Let's, let's, let's talk about the outside the box theory. But the thing is, is that um, I've been lucky enough to work with some highly creative, indi creative individuals who don't really believe there is a box. It's, it's, it's a construct in your mind. One of the things that I really enjoy thinking about, and it's, it's clear that you do as well, is the non-traditional ways of doing science communication, or science for that matter. Yeah. So I like the idea of doing you know, presentations to NRMA or in a prison or a hospital or the giants. You know, I, I once wanted to start a consulting company that goes to businesses and runs science themed workshops at Luna Park, you know, whatever, cool. try, try something different Just go to Luna Park and bring some business people there and start talking about risk. You know, that, that'd be fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> or, I love the fact or, that you just um, said fun just then. I mean, because there's no point doing it unless you're not enjoying it as well. Cause if you're not enjoying sure. it, I can guarantee you your class isn't. Yeah. 
Um, there's other examples too, like uh, recently last year I went to Splendor in the Grass and we did a science presentation at Splendor in the Grass. Yeah. Uh, now that was a lot of fun. There's non-traditional ways of, you know, going to places where science isn't. Yeah, and, and doing And doing presentations about, about that there. I, I respect that. I think that's brilliant. Um, and uh, without uh, telling the future or anything, uh, it looks like you and I think similarly on some things. So I'm going to write it down and say, work with Ben on something. <laughs> <laughs> actually, we might actually catch this splendor in, in the grass. Uh, we got contacted to say, hey, would you want to come play? And, and when anyone uses those words with us, we'll go, yeah, we'll play. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fun, right? And so basically what I'm describing is a bunch of ADHD types, right? Um, <laughs> but if it's not vibrant and if it just becomes routine, you've missed the point. Well, if you go to Splendor, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, um, I think I'm getting you know, voted out though. We've only got two places in a... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think I get to go to a lot of cool things. I'm going to make sure I share it around. I'm not sure if I get to go, but I'll see if I can sneak a lift. But people like, you know, Dr. Carl, he goes to Woodford Folk Festival every year. Music festivals and festivals and, you know, like you said, prisons and hospitals. These places, are, it's educational, I think, to go to those places. It's, it's worthwhile to go to those places. Yeah, I would say um, beyond worthwhile. I mean, because when you think about it, the biggest issue we've got in this community is that we talk to ourselves. In fact, we're doing it right now, uh -huh. right? <laughs> yep, completely, so, 100%. Yeah, we should be going out to where the people are as, as such and, uh, and not bashing them down with big words or coming across high and mighty because, frankly, that's half the issue, is working at their level. One of the things I totally respect with some of our presenters, and I did this work myself, some of the things I look for are not science presenting, presenting skills. Like that's part of it. But I also am very impressed if they've worked in a bar or if they've worked with kids at a scout club, if they can interact with people at a human level. That's critical for inspiring people's minds. It's not talking down or up to people. How about talking yeah, with sure. them? Yeah. So yep. it's simply just if you are, I um, mean, I, I was lucky enough that I, I'm, I'm an army kid. I, I, my family comes from the country. I've spent time living in a city. I went to a boarding school. I went to a Catholic school. I went to a public school. I've done all this stuff, done a lot of traveling all over the world, which means um, I can hopefully relate to people. And so I'm just always interested about well, their story, what they know. And I love having those chats. Like, for example, when we talk to people in retirement homes, I love their stories because frankly, I'm not even quite sure whether I even run the program because all I'm doing is asking questions and then people just spill out all these rich history and knowledge from their careers. And then everyone starts talking to each other and they all learn off each other. And I'm just sort of there as a facilitator. And that's fantastic. I, I read it. You reminded me of something. I read a book. Um, if you haven't read it, go and read it. It's called Physics on the Fringe. It's by Margaret Wertheim. Okay. Um, who is, she was an ex Sydney Morning Herald journalist, the science journalist, and then she went overseas and now freelance writes. But she wrote a book called Physics on the Fringe, where she, because she was a journalist and a science journalist, she'd get all these calls and faxes and emails and, you know, whatever, from mostly retired men about their new version of physics or, you know, Einstein is wrong and I'm right. And normally we'd say, oh, these people are crazy and crackpots and all that sort of stuff. But she started to listen to them, actually went and hung out with a few of them yeah. and figured out that they're fascinating people, insanely intelligent, but just a bit wrong mm -hmm. on a couple of things. But if you go to their conferences and they have conferences, 
it's indistinguishable whether they're right or we're right. So there's, she went to one of these fringe uh, conferences and they all know this. They all know that they get looked down on. On the other hand, they all think they're right. So yeah. there's a rule now in these conferences where it says you're not allowed to say that I'm right and everyone else is wrong because that makes us look like we're crackpots. On yeah. the other hand, you go to a physics string theory conference and what do they say? I'm right and you're all wrong. Well, actually, it's uh, fascinating. I agree. In fact, I'm pretty sure Niels Bohr has a quote, and you watch me get this wrong, right? But pretty much it's like the problem is that your theories is crazy, but the question is, is it crazy enough to be true? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know? So it's that's really cool. It's very, very important to to know this, and I actually totally agree with what you're just saying. Um, I think people get worried about the minutia. Okay, here you got 99% right, but you got this 1% wrong, and because you got this 1% wrong, all I'm going to do is focus on this because that somehow builds my ego and my reputation and whatever else is going on. Now, let's be honest: 1% wrong is still 1% wrong, but it's 99% right. Now, think about it from yeah. a learner's point of view. If all you get told is that you're wrong all the time, how many times are you going to keep putting out your ideas? You're not. In yeah. fact, Sir Ken Robinson talked about creativity being killed in schools. Now, I'm not going to go down that path because I think there are some highly creative educators who make sure the creative creativity is out there. And I know that people listening to this podcast will know exactly who I'm talking about with Sir Ken Robinson. Go check out his TED Talk. But whether you agree with or not with whether this creativity can be killed, I would suggest that potentially part of it is that we need to be focusing on just as much of what they're doing well as what they're not doing well. Here we go. I've got another question for you. Another thing we do in Stempunk is I'll get our previous guest to ask a question for our future guest. Oh, cool. And these people don't know each other, right? So I've got a question from our past guest. Her name is Chloe Warren, and she is a freelance science writer. Uh, we interviewed her late last year. So... Her question for you, even though she doesn't know you I love this or idea. that we were talking, is what is the best mistake you've ever made? <laughs> love it. Hi, Chloe. Love the question. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what is the best mistake I've ever made? Wow, I love it. I really like, and actually we are concentrate a lot of that with some of our podcasts about failure. I really dig failure because it's in there that you, you'll tend to learn a lot more. Um, yep. All right. Wow. And this is, this is the, you know, the stumbling, rambling chat while the person gathers their thoughts. That's what's occurring right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can put some hold music on if you like. Well, I prefer elevator music, please. That would be fantastic. Elevator music. All right. I'll do that. <laughs> I'll edit it in. All right. So there's no way I'm going to be able to say the most spectacular failure off the top of my head, but I must say, we do fail a lot so I'm just trying to think of uh, uh, you know I don't know even why this is even coming up okay stupid failure it's got nothing to do with science whatsoever but it's, it just popped into my memory and I don't want you to have to be having waiting around while I come up with something I do remember um, I used to have to work in the Novotel to serve um, like drinks and bits and pieces to wedding reception stuff and um, I was carrying like about 20 champagne flutes um and this is, you see what I mean? This is going nowhere with STEM. But it still was a spectacular failure. And what I learned that evening was when you're serving the drink around, especially around the bride's table, be sure to be aware of where your, like, you know, your tray is, where your champagne flutes are. Keep them away from people who may want to stand up. Because when they do stand up, they're very good from a pivot point. There we go. We can go with the leverage. As a pivot yeah. point, it kind, of, kind of tipped over. And I did get the groom a little wet. Mm, not little. <laughs> now, that's a simple, spectacular failure. But you know what? Um, the 
I mean, from an educational context, I can think of some of these things later, but tell you what that does, does make you realize there is a thing called humility and also a way to be able to deal with a bad situation well. I don't know if I helped you out there, Chloe. I'm going to have a little bit think a bit further, like what have I done in, in classes? Because I, I have had some complete mess ups. Um, but there's this, I'll, I guess, I'll probe you a little bit more. Has, has there been an experiment at a, a birthday party that's gone horribly wrong? Or not horribly, but it just didn't work? Yeah, you know what? I'm actually or... thinking of an issue what did actually occur. Um, and this was just being just not being observant or realizing the implications of what we were doing. Just a simple cornflower slime experiment. There's no issue in that beyond the slipping hazard and you've got to do a bit of cleaning up, right? The issue was not the cornflower. The issue was that we were doing it with food colouring, which happens to be where about 10 metres away, uh, the lady who had booked us, and thank you very much for having so long, by the way, she had this really nice porous sandstone blocks um, as part You're of a right. garden. And just not realizing, you know, I just said, hey, kid, just put your uh, slime over there. We're going to move on with the party, wash your hands, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't notice that one of the kids' cups had a ring of um, undiluted food coloring. Now, yeah. the geologists out there know full well exactly what's going to happen next, that <laughs> it's going to go into the porous sandstone. Yes, I had to uh, sort that out. <laughs> but that was just a, it, 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 by definition, a negligent thing to do, right? But... It's one of those things that in the moment you can miss it. So, you know, when you do your safe work method statements and risk assessments and blah, 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 and you've got to do it, right? But sometimes it's almost like trying to hold the tail of the dragon. <laughs> like what is going to go potentially wrong? Um, yeah. Thankfully, very few things have gone wrong because the people that we have on board and whatnot are, you know, well-experienced science communicators and science teachers, and they can think this through and there's training all the rest. However, every year we'll have something silly happen, and that was a good example of a silly thing. Can I, can I tell you one of my best mistakes that I've ever made? Sure. Uh, it's a story that I bring out often because it's one of the best. This was when I was working at Questacon. We yeah. went out to an indigenous community near Owen Pelly. Start at Northern Territory, find the middle, uh, and, and you're in the right place. <laughs> Not quite the middle, but you know, you know what I mean. Anyway, so we, we, we bought our science experiments in the back of a, a four-wheel drive and we turned up at this community with probably about eight people in it. We started to do a presentation that we'd normally give to, you know, year three or year four students, perhaps year six students, whatever. Uh, but it involved balloons and uh, Newton's laws of motion. So we had this one long balloon. I'm sure you can imagine it's the rocket yeah. balloon. Yeah. Uh, and you point it one way and you say, hey, the air's going to come out one way. Which way is the balloon going to go? Fair enough. And everyone knows the answer. You know, you point it to the left. Uh, the air's going to go out to the right. The balloon goes out to the left. Simple. Anyway, so with very little language and a translator, we were like, okay, where's the balloon going to go? And, uh, and all the kids pointed up and to the right. We were pointing this thing to the left. And we're like, okay, you didn't get that. Let's explain it again. So we explained it again a bit more slowly and then said, right, where's the balloon going to go? The air's going to go out to the right. The balloon's going to go to the left. Which way is the balloon going to go? And they all pointed up and to the right again. And we're like, oh, man, they just didn't get it. We're going to have to show them. So what do we do? We let the balloon go and the balloon went straight up and to the right. The wind took it. And yeah. I thought, okay, I'm in their classroom now. <laughs> yeah. Good call. It was, we just did not realize. We were outside. We didn't know. There was a slight breeze that we just didn't even notice. And as soon as we let the balloons go, they just went up and to the right. And these kids laughed themselves silly because they're like, yeah, we taught you a lesson. We left with our tail between our legs and just thought, yep, we absolutely failed that, but 
man, that was a good lesson. It was perfect because that's the thing. Like, um, you could have people in front of you. You're not um, you, like you might assume they know something, and often they know a lot more than they think. It's a bit like when we run a dinosaur program. I always say to the four-year-old kid of the preschool, "I guarantee you, you know more than I think, and more yeah. more than the teachers and the parents think in this room as well." And they all start yeah. beaming, and I'm not, I'm, I'm dead set serious. <laughs> These kids, like you go, "Here's a dinosaur. What's it look like?" And the kid will say, "It's Pachycephalosaurus." Like, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I'm still waiting for a kid to say Australovenator, like you know the Australian. You know, Banjo, uh, Winternensis, but I'm still. The thing is that you cannot discount your um, your group. Mind you, language is a barrier. We ran programs. We like we've done programs. We've travelled overseas with our stuff. We did some programs in China, and uh, that means obviously a translator at in in a lot of these points. And some of the times you may be trying to translate something that is untranslatable. So yeah. I found out at the time that the person who was helping me out, uh, this was around the uh, Guangdong province uh, near Shenzhen, uh, which is near Hong Kong. There's not really a fantastically useful word for slime, turns out. There actually isn't. He was trying to say this, and I feel sorry for the guy. Like he's trying to get his, wrap his head around it. It's the stuff that isn't quite a liquid or a solid but drips. Was sort of effectively <laughs> right. what he was saying. I'd love to, if there's anyone listening on in who knows a far better translation for slime, please let us know in Mandarin. That'd be fantastic. I mean, it, you might have to revert to non-Newtonian fluid, but then it kind of kills it. <laughs> yeah, but the biggest problem was I was running this to five-year-olds. <laughs> so I mean, then you got like it's one of these things. Like um, we uh, in an earlier uh, episode, we got to speak with Joanna House, who won the Flame Challenge with the Alan Alder Center. Now I'm going to probably mess yeah. this story up slightly. The part of the whole Flame Challenge was Mr. Alan Alder, the you know the bloke from Mash and all these other shows beyond that, brought it, went up to his teacher when he was 11 years old and said, "What is a flame?" And the teacher said, just really offhandedly, "A flame is a is, is a product of combustion." And Alan Alder effectively said, well, now I've got two questions. <laughs> yeah. so, and that's the, that in, in the, the real heart of science communication. Don't <laughs> create a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. You want them leaving asking questions, but asking questions that aren't created by your lack of ability to uh, explain a concept. Because they could have gone to another person who would have described, you know, what truly was combustion was in simple language. Now, simple language doesn't mean you're dumbing it down. It means you're making the idea accessible. Now, don't confuse the two. Just saying combustion, I mean, I can say big fancy words to a whole bunch of primary kids, but that doesn't help them one little bit. Unless they get it, which, which, uh, and if you were to say it's a product of combustion, you're going to have to do pretty well to explain that. Totally so. I mean, I remember running, um, we used to run programs with the New South Wales Gifted and Talented Association, and um, I remember running a program where there was a bunch of 10-year-olds in the room Long story short, we're talking about cells. So red cells, blood, white cells, platelets, etc. I just had a kid just put his hand up, go, sir, can you just say erythrocytes and be done with it? <laughs> and I went, let's yeah. do that. So suddenly my lesson became a year 11 biology workshop. I guess the moral of the story is listen to your audience, let yeah, them give sure. you the feedback and then happy days from there. So I asked you a question from our previous guest. Um, I'll invite you to ask one for our next guest. Yeah, I've got a great question. In fact, it's actually one of the interview questions that we ask when people want to work here. And it's a good question because it tells me about where their heart is and how they think. It's a nice, simple question. If you had 10 million bucks in your pocket right now and the only caveat was it must be spent on some form of STEM outreach in some way, what would you do with it? 
What would you do with that $10 million? How would you make that spread and make an impact? That's a great question. That's why we use it. <laughs> yeah. What would I do with it? Yeah. I was, I was, I was, I literally, I'm going to throw that to you now, mate. What do you reckon? 10 million right. bucks. I mean, that's well outside of the scope of most funding, right? So now the doors are open. What would you do with it? Look, my numbers are going to be a bit out, but I reckon I would invest a lot of it. Let's say seven and a half million uh, so that that keeps going. So it's not just 10 million. It's more than that. It, it comes back every year, but I would invest it. So it has to be STEM. So I'd invest it into something that's STEM related like um, renewable energy or uh, something like that. There's, so it's going to keep giving, giving me back money every year so I don't have to worry about it running out as soon as it will. So I'd invest some of it into renewables or some tech company. I reckon I'd try and fund some sort of startup, so some sort of tech startup uh, based on uh, STEM education. One comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Not two. <laughs> I don't know, two or three. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Keep going. Oh, wow. And the rest, the rest you could do some really cool inspirational projects with. I like the idea of what CubeRider have done, um, which is sending like basically satellites out to schools so that the schools can muck around with a satellite. And then the, the punchline is, well, that's exactly what we've just put in space. Or Planet Labs, which is trying to take, uh, throw lots and lots of satellites up into space, which uh, do remote sensing. Or, oh, there's a couple of really cool science startups. So I'd, I'd try, and, try and do something with that. I'd try and- No, I love question. that. I mean, I really, lo really love that answer. In fact, I love the idea of investing in a perpetual fund. Um, I mean, we've had lots of different answers over the years and all of them have been valid in lots of different ways. Excuse me. Now, um, one of the things about a perpetual thing that invests in people be able to, it's the old analogy, you know, do you teach them to fish or do you give them a fish? I love that idea. In fact, I was lucky to get involved with and, and, and become a, a, one of the recipients of a Churchill Fellowship, which works on exactly that principle that in the 1960s, a whole bunch of money got thrown in to a big pot in respect and, and a, a, yeah, a, a continual trust which was going to honor the, the memory of Sir Winston Churchill. And the yeah. idea was is that that money would then go as traveling fellowships for people who are doing the best they can in what they do. And that knowledge would then be brought back to Australia and then shared. And that means that it's perpetual. It then effectively is an investment into infinity as long as they keep on <laughs> investing correctly. And that means that your seven and a half million that you suggested is no longer seven and a half million. It's a lot bigger than that and that's the yeah. idea that's why i actually asked this question because i'm very interested in 10x thinking i like the idea of you know how the idea that a meeting if it's set for an hour you'll run it to an hour then you'll stop even though the the, the conversation should have stopped at 37 minutes or <laughs> yes. if you got the funding of a hundred thousand dollars people make sure they spend all their money to a hundred thousand dollars because turns out they're assessed about how that money was spent right yep the word spent is the key here it was spent it was not invested because at the end yeah. of it all, there's no more money left. There's no more things. And, and sadly, and it's a, real, it's a real issue that happens in this particular industry, science communication, that these funded things are awesome until they're no longer funded. The issue is they're not sustainable. And that's actually one of the things that we've always measured what physics does, physics education does, is that we've never really applied for funding. Not really. Mm. I mean, occasionally people will ask us, hey, dudes, you really, it's time you do this one. But the reality is, is that if you build everything around a funding model, that's all well and good until you have a political climate change or there's actually no yeah. more money to begin with. If you make it sustainable from the start, 
and run a model whereby it's fair and equitable and can people who can't quite access it, you use money from other places to be able to allow them to access it, suddenly you make real change happen and it can't be knocked over by a win. I think, I think you know, both you and I find ourselves in that situation slightly different, right? So uh, the, the job that I do is basically it's funds itself and the job that you do gives you the, the chances or the, the, uh, the resources for you to do what you want and more, which is really awesome. Yeah, it's a bit of fun. I mean, as long as we make payroll each week, we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, to be honest, uh, for people like you, and uh, I put myself in that category as well, sometimes it isn't <laughs> just about the payroll. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't get told by your colleagues, hey, Ben, it's time to go home now, mate. Come on, let's go home. That's right. You know, you're still at work enjoying what you do. And I think that's, that's it's beautiful. It's really cool to see. That's what I love with, I mean, that's actually quite rife in this industry, which is fantastic. And education as a whole, and then goes beyond that into professional areas where people are passionate for what they do. I've argued that I haven't worked for years. I just take a long time doing it. Um, what is, like you've probably covered some of this, but what's next for you? Oh, gosh. Um, we've got to sort out the San Diego thing. Um, so that's only just started the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Seriously, we're just still sorting out a bank account. <laughs> so, but um, I mean, I love a challenge. Uh, so I'm, and as you can hear, I, I don't limit um, opportunities. I just see where the dice lay and we then throw the dice again and again and again and again. Um, so for me, it's making sure that A, that what we do is still doing what we purport it to do, that it communicates science effectively in a way that's accessible for the people who are in front of us. Uh, secondly, that I'm also interested about reaching audiences and places that haven't been traditionally dealt with. In fact, well, like both of us run a podcast, right? And the reason why I run this, the, like we've, we, you know, you've got Stempunk, we run Physics Ed Podcast because we couldn't think of any other name. Uh, <laughs> now, um, the, uh, the reason why was simply I was challenged by a teacher during a, a, teacher P, a TPL, a teacher professional learning event, basically saying, I want to hear from people doing cool stuff. And I said, oh, no, cool. I've got some blogs here. You can read the book that I've written. You can go check out that. She goes, no, no, no. I don't want to read anything. I want to hear from them. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a podcast was born. Because yes. firstly, if I get challenged, I usually do something about it. <laughs> um, and secondly, she had a valid point. Because she was stuck in traffic every afternoon. Seriously, she's a Sydney teacher. You're in Sydney. You're going to cop traffic. She, got, yeah. she wanted to listen to people who do cool stuff in her world. And um, so for me, I can't actually quite answer your question because I am a little reactive to my own detriment occasionally, but um, that means that every year it's a new and brighter things. Uh, similar, the reason that I started a podcast was because I want to try and do science communication in as many different ways as possible, not as a box ticking exercise, but I want to be good. Like that's why I, you know, I have done science communication to primary school. I have done it to high school, informal and formal. Um, and I've also, you know, I've written a paper. I've written for a pop science magazine. I've done a podcast. I've done radio interviews. I've done television interviews. I just want to be able to, you know, tweeting, Facebook. I want to be able to do all of that. I want to say, because I take my job seriously, as you do, right? Science communicator. I want to be able to say, I can communicate science to as many different people as I can. And that's the reason I started a podcast. And that's Because brilliant. that's one of them. That's perfect. And that's exactly where I'd hope that anyone who is educating an audience should hopefully be leaning towards. Now, let's be honest, all of us have different amounts of resources and time and all the rest. We've got to be you know, really clear about that. But there really is that whole um, journey of a thousand miles, just take one step. 
You'd be amazed yeah. how far things go if you take the step. The issue that happens, I believe, doesn't mean I'm right. It's just a belief, right? My belief system is often it's around a perception of resource limitations or a perception of fear. What yeah, will happen? Sure. What will happen? Yeah. What will happen? And over the years, I mean, I can't say I'm fearless, but I've certainly grown to learn that you can fail and fail and fail again. All you do is you fail fast and move forward. I'm reading a book at the moment. It's, it's pop, this book, but it's called The Gentle Art of Not Giving a, you know, bleep. Yes, I love it. I want to read that book. I know exactly what you're talking about. Or the, yeah, The Art of Not Giving a Hoot. Let's call it that. Uh, and that's, it's, that's what they say there. Like his opening line is, you're going to get tired of hear, hearing this. <laughs> you mess up uh, and then move on. That's how you learn. <laughs> That's exactly right. And the thing is, I mean, if you speak with any person, especially because I've had the advantage to be able to go to retirement homes and whatnot, and I always ask for their advice because I want to learn from them too. And they go, you know what? I wish I just did what I knew. You know, you know that whole idea of that, um, I mean, I wish I could remember it. I mean, I always like these sort of stories, but in the 15, when you're a 15-year-old, you're always worried about what everyone thinks. And the 20-year-old, you're starting to feel a, bit, a little bit like, you know, you can do your own thing, but you're still a little bit not quite sure whether what you're doing is actually quite right. By the time you're 30, you think you're actually doing okay, but you're not too quite sure. You've got financial things and all the rest. By the time you start eating when it's 40 and 50, you realize, you know what? No one was really watching in the first place. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you were doing the best you could anyway. So um, it's just, you know what, as long as you don't destroy the farm that you work in, the building that you work in, the organization's credibility and everything else, as long as you're moving forwards, that's a good way to go. Um, yeah. So what's next I'm, for you? Like, what's me? Yeah. So a number of things. I've got a couple of papers that I'm writing, which is exciting, which are throwing up some interesting uh, results and questions. One of them is going to come out fairly soon, I hope. The, the new syllabus is next for me. So the Kickstart program that I run here, it needs to be updated fairly quickly because the new syllabus for New South Wales is coming in, uh, which is really exciting because it just means we get to go into the lab and start tinkering, designing new experiments, uh, new resources, and helping the teachers with these, these, these new depth studies. I'm sure you've heard lots of yeah, about the depth studies. Big thing for year 11 and 12. Big thing for year 11 and 12, for sure. And uh, a lot of teachers and students don't know how to approach that. So, you know, you people like you and I are in a position to start helping them, which I'm pretty excited about. And like I said before, the other things like non-traditional science communication, I absolutely want to keep going to places like music festivals or um, agricultural days or you know, following your footsteps, going to places like prisons. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, um, just make sure you don't take the sharp things. <laughs> Liquid nitrogen, not <laughs> no, a good serious. idea. No, real, real story, actually. Um, we, so, no, this is not made up. We've got a juvenile justice centres. Um, we've been to um, uh, maximum security where you've got uh, young adult offenders between 18 and 25. Uh, and um, we had a, um, a, a, the high school teacher, because some of these places have high school in there, and of course, there's a massive disparity and difference between the learners because some of these kids, they might be 16, but they're still not able to read for whatever reasons happened in their family and their background. And other ones are highly intelligent, but they use their intelligence in another way. And mind you, don't get me wrong, the kids who couldn't read, they will be just as intelligent. But the issue is that they've got all this other stuff going on that's prevented them. Now, um, we went into this uh, particular school but we couldn't get into the school till you actually literally get buzzed in, like, you know, you know check everything out and security and yeah. all the rest. 
And the security guard at the time hadn't been quite informed that we're coming in to do this thing, which turned out was actually a liquid nitrogen show. So here we are bringing a hazardous chemical into a high security site. Uh, and I'd been ticked off by the powers that be, but the powers that be hadn't quite informed what was happening down below. <laughs> so he um, was really intent on uh, having us tip the dewer on its side and run it through this multi, how many thousand dollar x-ray machine. I said, mate, oh, yeah. you, you can only do, do this. You can only do this once. <laughs> you know, like it's so events like, you know, I, I said like, it'd be the, I'm doing the best smuggling trick you can possibly think of at this point. Like I said, I can open the, open the jewel lid up. You can look inside. It's going to be dark. It's going to be filled with really cold stuff. I can pour it a little bit out so you can see it, but you're going to freak out once you start seeing what it does. <laughs> it was an interesting <laughs> discussion. But I mean, this is the thing is that it, it gets to come down to knowing your environment and what are the other logistics. Yeah. I mean, we love the pragmatism of what is the thing. In fact, when we do a lot of events, because we have, you can hear, like we do a bucket load of events. They could be festivals and whatever. Um, and often when you speak with the event producer, the focus seems to be more about the whiz-bang pretty lights and all the fandangled stuff, whereas we care about where do we park, where do we put the stuff, where's yeah. the PowerPoint, where's the washing up spot, because the science and all the credibility stuff on stage, we already know. We just want to know the stuff, that other stuff, and often it's not considered. Mind you, I must say, there'll be some event producers that are totally doing a massively decent job. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But there are others where you go, wow, did you not consider this prior? We've got a lot of equipment. We need to, yeah. And one of the other things I wanted to mention about what's next, and I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to start doing this message more and more and more because not only should it be next for me or should it be something that I consider as the next thing, but I think it really should be something that everybody thinks is the next thing. And I'm going to sound like a bit of, like I know what I'm going to sound like, right? But I think uh, I would like to start getting the politics message across a little bit. I don't know what you think about that, but Dr. Carl has a great way of saying it. It's better that you're standing inside the tent weeing out than standing outside the tent weeing in. <laughs> so one of the ways that you, you can change science or culture or policies is to be a part of it. So that's, that's one of the things that I'm going to try and do a lot more is be a part of politics and that discussion and it takes a brave person to do this because the reality is you stick your head above, above the parapet things will fly at it um and i understand oh that. yes and that it's part I've of it and, and and really almost toxic venomous stuff can come at you vitriol which is in some ways completely unfounded and based on their own fears and so it is a difficult thing i know that people like neil it's, deGrasse tyson will uh comment yeah subtly but very effectively on particular things um and there are others around bill nye does it and all the rest there will there is also some research around when you're dealing with the science message as to how to deal with the issues that happen around you know the pseudoscience stuff and there's plenty of pseudoscience around that um the very active engaging in that discussion is far more important than flat refusing their ideas because they actually back away and entrench their ideas so it's a very difficult line and i'm not actually i'm not just saying subjectively i know there's research on this so it's 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 very difficult isn't it and and you know well done for looking at the politics side of it because that's a, a genuinely interesting area which i think um as society becomes even like every year, every generation becomes more and more informed about how the world works. Like it's just a, it's a clear way. Otherwise we still in the dark ages, right? But it's still got to be championed by these people that put their head above the parapet. 
and yeah. uh, good on you. That's awesome. It's right. really hard to argue with people like that too because, like you said, vitriol, I, like I don't know the definition of that word, but it's probably quite based on ideology, which is, which is almost you know, the anti, or it's the opposite of science. Like ideology, well, it's the opposite of the scientific process. Like mm. I will argue a point based on evidence, but an ideology is based on a belief. And the thing is, so uh, when vitriol happens at you, it's very difficult to reply back with a scientific argument. So it's challenging, but worthwhile. I think. It is, and as long as the this, and that's why I said discussion. Discussion based on mutual respect on people's yep. headspace around a particular concept is the beginning of a long-term engagement in a narrative that can be dealt with over time. The flat refusal. This actually goes back to what we we're discussing about twenty minutes ago, rather about the one percent being focused on, not the ninety-nine percent you got right. Um, yeah. I mean, there is actually, you look at all these different things and I don't want to go down some of the areas that ends up, these, these discussions often end up going. There is a lot of merit to a lot of the things that you hear about stories about how things work from time and up to now and all these different ways, right? And a lot of it comes down to that particular group of people's experiences and interpretation of those experiences. I mean, obviously, that some, in some cases, there was more scientific method than others but their interpretation of those experiences are nonetheless, they're still valid. They just may not be rooted in logical scientific reason that's testable, measurable and all the rest. Right? So if you've grown up in that particular belief system and that's all you've ever heard, and now you've got someone saying, nah, ain't the case. Natural human responses to go, ah, nah, <laughs> this is totally yeah, wrong. Well, you're and wrong. Exactly. Yeah. And I totally get that. And that's why I actually deliberately, keep my nose out of it because I actually respect both sides because it's not like a protection to the company or to myself. It's actually like, you know what? I would rather not spend time in a flaming war on Twitter. I'd rather actually have a beer with someone or not a beer if they can't have beer, but the quietly have a chat with them and find out where they're coming from. And over time, get that out. Now, of course we can't do that with yep. the mat with the masses, but things like the podcast and the blogs and all this other stuff builds up a body of work, which hopefully over time can be accessible and used. I think that's a pretty good place to end. What do you reckon? No, thanks very much, mate. Um, that was a great chat. Uh, thanks very much for inviting me along. podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.